Yeah. Hi, good morning everyone. Thanks for joining. Today we have Asby Brown once again talking about his book, The Japanese Dream House. So please stick around. We will be right back. Hi, thanks for joining today. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, check out inboundambassador.com. And you can also find me on buymeacoffee.com slash JJ Walsh to get some bonus information and insights from the series. Hi everyone, thanks for joining. This is Seeking Sustainability Live number 201. Thank you so much for joining once again, Asby Brown, and I am JJ Walsh, and today we're talking about the Japanese dream house. Now, before we dive into all the wonderful insights in this book, because today is International Women's Day, it's actually really suitable because the Japanese house is the woman's domain. As, as far as I have experienced in all my years in Japan, don't you think, Asby? Uh, yes, it's it's really clear. Uh, it's been that way forever, basically. And uh, one of the things that is interesting to me is that as uh, homes are marketed, home design is marketed, it's largely marketed to women. Uh, and even if it's rarely overtly acknowledged, all these subtle hints and languages that this is for you, women, ladies, housewives, um, they're, the advertising and everything is full of that. Um, even though... As we know, there's not a lot of stay-home, home, you know, uh, house housewives anymore. You know, everyone's working. So this is a very interesting paradox. Yeah, I remember when I first came to Japan, and uh, the homestay I was at it was so strict. The father in the house was not even allowed in the kitchen. He ah. would stand outside the kitchen, hanging around for someone to get him something from the kitchen. Like the rules of that house were very strict. I don't know if that's very typical of Japan, but it really left a strong impression on me that, wow, the, the wife, the mother has the house as the domain. That is her place. She's the boss. It's really interesting, isn't it? There, in Japanese homes, there has always been sort of a men's domain, which of course might be work areas, or he is expected to be lounging around in the most comfortable room and being served. And even in my own uh, family, my, my wife's family, uh, it was pretty old fashioned. And although my father-in-law, love to go, you know, make soba and everything every now and then in the kitchen. Basically, the pattern was he would be sitting at the table and, and barking, you know, for something. Bring me whiskey. Bring me, you know, rice. Bring me something. And and that was just the dynamic. So um, it's 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 a, a cultural habit that dies hard. I mean, there's still a lot of this around, I think. Uh, tell us a bit about how you got uh, making this book. It's a collaboration with Joseph Kali. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. It's an interesting story. Uh, the book was published in 2001 and uh, by Kodansha International. Uh, and the project came together uh, because of interest by Misawa Home, uh, one of the major uh, home manufacturers, uh, to provide a, a kind of book that could be given as a gift to uh, you know potential customers or used in their you know basic uh, PR, etc. Uh, but they they had a, a history of doing very serious books on different aspects of Japanese home history, traditional homes, you know farms, etc. Very very well done sort of academic books uh, with very good visuals, and they wanted something like that. So um, Joseph Kali is a designer. Uh, he's also a writer, and um, I'm not sure what he's doing lately, but um, you know, he basically helped lay out the book and do the design for the book, which is actually very, very uh, attractive and interesting. Um, so it was basically writing a book. At that point, I had already done um, uh, a book called Small Spaces. I had already done The the Genius of Japanese Carpentry. Uh, and this was uh, continuing on the research that I had been doing on Japanese houses and lifestyles. Um, let's talk a little bit about the sections, and then we'll mm -hmm. dive into certain parts <clears throat> of it. Yeah. Um, so you separated the book into five parts. Right. Uh, housing needs and desires, honing yep. the system house, uh, providers, new directions, and home sweet home. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, the book is both um, a sort of history of home design and looking particularly at what were the images, what was considered a desirable lifestyle. 
uh, how did the so-called dream house image change and evolve over time and what was propelling and making the change. And so, uh, for instance, housing needs and desires, um, there's a lot of historical images uh, of certainly, you know, pre-modern and, 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 you know, traditional homes. Uh, but looking at the situation in Japan after the Second War, uh, how really destroyed uh, the cities had been, the fact that people were living as what are, what are called baraku, but are basically sheds pulled together with, you know, tin roofs or whatever scraps they could find, how utterly... Uh, inadequate the housing was, and then the first uh, efforts to address that. Uh, and then this gradual increase in economic power, economic stability in people's incomes, and how that's reflected in improvements in housing. And uh, of, of course, um, you know, Japanese technology was also growing. And at some at a certain point in the 1970s, in particular, um, housing sort of became kind of a high-tech industry. So it's showing, you know, both how how were the um, star architects doing these showpiece one-off houses, you know, their role in generating images uh, for people's lifestyles, and then how house builders would somehow interpret some of those ideas or take some of those ideas and make them into mass market, um, you know, home, home products. So it's kind of looking at all of these aspects together, but constantly keeping an eye on how is Japanese lifestyle, uh, how, how are the lifestyles themselves changing and how are the home builders and home manufacturers specifically addressing and accommodating that and within a larger context of cultural change. Now, uh, let's start a little bit further mm -hmm. back, maybe, and go from when the Edo period and you had very typical types of houses for farmers and merchants and the samurai. And then once uh, after the Edo and things started opening up again, and then the desirable type of house for the middle class people, you were saying, of course, would be more similar to what the samurai had. And yes. recently when I visit like rural towns, like they'll have a kimono shop in the front and they'll have private family rooms behind. You often see this in Kyoto, the very uh, narrow but very deep style house. And you introduced this so beautifully in your book. Yeah, it's a really interesting aspect. Um, in a culture that was so hierarchical and actually a caste society with the samurai at the top and then the, the farmers and then the merchants and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, going on down, um, you know, everybody generally in the world uh, sort of idolizes and dreams of having uh, a lifestyle and, and, and aspects of a home design of the people who are considered to be higher status of them. And in the case of the samurai house, they were, during the Edo period, the only ones allowed to have a gate to their garden. This is kind of, seems kind of unbelievable to us, but um, they were the only ones allowed to have a gate. Now, certain the highest uh, you know, status of farmers uh, would also have a sort of a gate, but this was something that people wanted, uh, certain kinds of genkans and other things. So um, when... Uh, the Meiji period started and the samurai class was eliminated and all of those laws, they were literally laws prohibiting people from having these kinds of houses. Um, when those disappeared, then suddenly everybody wanted a gate, for instance. Suddenly everybody wanted the kind of samurai genkan and they wanted the zashiki with, you know, lacquered shelves and things like that. So this was a very interesting um, uh, thing that happened. At the same time, as you're pointing out, uh, in the cities like Kyoto or even uh, Tokyo or Osaka, big cities, uh, Nagoya, which uh, the cities have what are called machia, which are townhouses that you describe with a shop in the front on the ground floor and people living behind and maybe on the second floor. This persisted for a long time, even even to today. You can still find this all over the country today in, in you know, updated, modernized form. So uh, not everybody suddenly went to live like a samurai. Some people simply continued uh, a lifestyle that sort of evolved and added new, new features uh, from the modern world and, and often from the Western world. Uh, it's interesting to watch the evolution of the house design and how, uh, like you said, right after the war, it was about building quickly, uh, building housing that was needed, any kind of housing. And so they were kind of borrowing from the military occupational style housing, um, building very quickly. And then as people um, were better off economically, they started choosing more Japanese design 
and incorporating kind of a fusion between Western and Japanese styles. Is that right? So interesting. You you, you summarize this so well. Uh, maybe you can write your your own book. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. It's a fa another fascinating thing. Like what were the things that made made people need or want to change how they built and designed their houses? And of course, this economic need was a big one. And again, the post-war era was really big on that. And the government uh, did a major push to do public housing, including big apartment buildings as well as single-family homes. And they were very, very simple and not very big. Uh, at the same time, um, American uh, occupation uh, built thousands and thousands of homes for American servicemen and their family in different parts of the country. Uh, Tokyo had a very interesting one called Washington Heights, which was in Harajuku, basically Yoyogi Park, what is now Yoyogi Park. It had been a former uh, military uh, training ground uh, right next to a Meiji Shrine. Uh, and the American military took that over and built like 800 units of housing there. And the photos of that uh, housing district, and I include one in the, in the book, um, it's like an American subdivision just plopped down in the middle of Tokyo. And it was surrounded by a fence, you know, with barbed wire at the top. And, you know, uh, they had houses, single family houses with lawns and, um, you know, can some apartment blocks as well. And they had club and a school and all kinds of, you know, amenities for the service people. Um, and this was the first exposure for a lot of Japanese people to what an American lifestyle really looked like. Now, very few actually were allowed to enter. I mean, people who worked there, lots of Japanese were working in American bases just as today, and they could get a firsthand look and they might be invited to someone's home. And I remember my professor at Todai, uh, Hisao Koyama, architects professor, uh, talking to him about this because he was young at the end of the war. But, you know, he I said, what do you remember? He said, oh, yeah, I used to go by there and I would just press my face against the the chain link fence. I said, well, what do you remember the most? The, the, the cars, the lawns? He said, no, I remember this tall, blonde haired woman with a baby carriage. And that just was impressed on him as, you know, America. And, uh, and this was a big influence. So the, the largest shift in American, uh, rather in Japanese lifestyles in the post-war period came from uh, the American lifestyle. And some of this is from this direct exposure to base housing. A lot of it came from mass media. Uh, initially, before television was widely available, from magazines, Life magazine, and they'll show American houses with their beautiful living rooms and their big kitchens and stuff. And then TV shows, um, you know, Father Knows Bests and things like that. Uh, then people would absorb this American lifestyle and sort of dream about it. And this, this became a big thing. Uh, you point out... Uh, the kind of ambiguous role that the Japanese traditional lifestyle then started to occupy for a lot of people. And we should point out that cities were always tending to be more Western style than rural areas or smaller towns. So the Japanese tatami mat floor-based lifestyle pers has persisted a lot longer, literally in terms of the amount of floor area devoted to Japanese uh, tatami mats uh, than it has in the cities. Uh, but, but little by little, having a Japanese room seemed to be kind of old-fashioned and, and really was kind of not something shameful, but people could be persuaded that this was, you know, old-fashioned and something they should get rid of. And a lot of people did that. And it sort of shifted from, um, you know, Japanese houses being primarily Japanese-style tatami mat rooms with maybe one Western-style room, like a little living room or a dining room with a table, to the opposite, where it would be mostly floors, you know, wooden floors or whatever the floors are, and then one Japanese room. And, and this is a massive, massive cultural shift that even uh, affects our physical bodies, where, how we're sitting, we're sitting on the floor, are we standing up? It affects everything. So this is a massive shift, and I try to chronicle that uh, in this book. One thing before we move on after the war that mm -hmm. I, I love because it's so focused on sustainability, and mm -hmm. it reminds me of um, Matt Alt's book, about mm -hmm. innovation and the effect of pop culture from Japan on the world, even after the war. Uh, you have a great picture of reusing tin cans oh. to make the roof tiles. And in Matt Alt's book, he talked about the reusing of tin cans to make toys ah. and the innovation Isn't of the toy industry. And so I thought that was a great connection. 
That that's a great connection. Uh, yeah, Matt's book is fascinating, and and I know you've had him on, and and really interesting. Very very, he I mean he knows more about this stuff than anybody else I think. And yes, um, at the end of the war there were not a lot of resources for people to do things. And and in the case of the toys, sure, they, they pressed, they literally pressed tin cans into use uh, for toys and some very uh, innovative designers actually spearheaded that. And um, what I showed in the book in terms of the roof made of tin cans, this was kind of like a one-off solution, like people were using anything to get a roof over their head, tin cans, old railroad cars, um, you know, vehicles, um, you know, buses, um, you know, anything at all they could find or scavenge. And and some people, some builders might uh, find a store of a certain kind of material that we would consider substandard, but say, well, we're going to make a lot of houses out of this. Uh, a lot of the lumber itself was was poor quality, salvaged. Um, you know, salvage is not always a bad thing, but in the end of the Second War, it was not very good quality. I mean, I lived in a house in Kiba in Tokyo, which is in Stamachi, uh, a place that had been totally firebombed. And uh, and I just remember looking at the – it was a Japanese style with the exposed woodwork and just looking and thinking, this wood is actually not very good. And the house was built like in the 1950s or something. You know, And it's like, yeah, I, I can see the reality of this. This wood is all split and cracked and it has huge knots and eh. but that's what they had to work with so um, this crisis and this massive need led to a lot of innovation and technical innovation and 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 thinking of new ways to do things that uh, had not been done before uh, out of the sense of need and and keep in mind that even though the material culture of the country the houses the cities all this had been destroyed um, you know, the people were still the same people, the educated, you know, good design, good craftsmanship. I mean, a lot of a lot of people died, of course, but uh, the culture was still the same and had the same characteristics that led to the beautiful designs we know as traditional design. So uh, it's the post-war housing process is like one of, um, you know, engaging the real ability of the nation to house the nation in uh, greater and greater security and comfort as time goes on. Just to continue on the same theme, it's kind of a different time frame, but you also document in the 1980s how a lot of the um, public housing had solar water heaters put on them. And then later on, um, there's development of a wood, recycled wood and plastic combination, wood flooring and terrace paneling. We actually chose that for our remodel. It lasts longer. Oh, right? that's yeah. interesting. So it's so, so nice to see there are themes of sustainability in terms of building resources yeah. as well yeah. through the book? Um, you know, and maybe we can tie this into something a little bit earlier. Uh, there was a, let's say, a, a trend of mar architecture very prominent in Japan called metabolism, which really began in the 1960s with some roots a bit earlier. Uh, and uh, people like uh, Kurokawa and uh, Kikutake-san and uh, Maki-san and others. And um, a, one main um aspect of this was that uh, the houses themselves could be prefabricated modules that could be added to this massive uh, infrastructure like concrete. And there's one, the, the Nakagin uh, capsule building um, by Kisho Kurokawa in Tokyo still exists. It was made in the early 1970s and it's one example. And not a lot of it was made, but the idea was, oh, we can build houses in a way similar to how we build automobiles, because by that point, Japan was very successful at building automobiles and high quality vehicles. And the idea is, oh, well, you keep this house module for a while and then you buy a new one and plug that into your old place and you upgrade just like you would buy new cars. And the idea was that this was a could could be a better way of using resources rather than, you know, constantly demolishing entire buildings. You would just replace parts as they're necessary. And it was kind of an interesting vision um, ne that never really came to fruition in, in the scale that it, the architects envisioned. So there was this notion that technology can sort of point the way to solve our energy problems and our resource problems and all of our other problems. Uh, this was really, really heavily, um, you know, it, you know, basically promoted and explored in Expo 70 in Osaka, this big world's exposition, which again was a lot of people's first exposure to sort of high tech living and stuff. Zoom forward a couple of decades uh, and the market itself 
uh, people themselves were demanding more sustainable solutions, both in terms of energy consumption, which was a big one, and also, to some degree, uh, resource consumption. Uh, and the home builders themselves, the manufacturers particularly, uh, they also were constantly trying to minimize the amount of energy and water that they were actually using and, and uh, minimizing you know, the, the use of natural resources and, if possible, using um, discarded material or what would otherwise be waste material because that is cost-effective for them. And, and just like in the Edo book, um, talking about how most of these solutions that were the, the, the most long-lived long and long-implemented ones, they worked because, you know, they, there was a strong market incentive, economic incentive for it. So that has been the same case in the housing industry in Japan. Uh, people want, um, you know, to spend less, ener less money for power, to, to use less electricity. So you had the solar hot water heaters on every roof. This was amazing to me when I first came to Japan. I saw how many houses had those hot water heaters. We don't see as many now because other solutions have sort of come, uh, come and taken the place. And the house manufacturers embrace that. And uh, you're talking about uh, using sort of plastics or making plastic from sawdust, basically. There are lots of companies that do this. Misawa Home really promoted that for a long time, that they would actually make their interior details and their doors and things out of this simulated wood made from wood refuse, uh, which it looked fine. I, personally, I, I didn't really like it, but this was worth pointing out. Uh, but it, it, this has been a constant thing. And we see this also reflected in baths and kitchens and everything that uses water in the heating systems and in, and in everything else. So interesting. And uh, we really wanted a deck. So mm -hmm. we actually built it twice. The very first time we built it was just wood. And mm -hmm. the second time we built it, uh, we were looking for more like longer use material because it yep. was less than five years. The straight wood had rotted down. Mm -hmm. And so we found this kind of hybrid recycled wood and recycled plastic material. Mm -hmm. And I really dislike plastic, but it is much, much longer wearing. And we, we plan on using it for a much longer time. So yeah. you have to choose, you know, what what's going to work for your situation. So for yeah. us, it's been <clears throat> over 10 years now and we still use and enjoy that deck. And another reason I chose this material instead of wood is a lot of the wood they were recommending was imported from rainforests yes. in other countries. And I didn't want to do that. That was right. definitely not the right choice, right? Um, we it would be great if we had more better choices and yeah. and you're right uh, if you want you know wood that is going to be very very water resistant and rot resistant uh, in Japan it's likely to be imported from rainforests and uh, teak or, or or woods that are sort of similar to that uh, meanwhile you have plastics and you have to wonder well what's going to happen to this when it's at its end of use um, you know is it going to be able to be recycled or not and it, it's worth trying to find something you know that that will work that way um, Metal. I mean, I see a lot of engawa, you know, Japanese verandas made yeah, from metal, you know, aluminum, etc. We see lots of fences and things that might have originally been made of wood or bamboo are now made of like aluminum and plastic. Uh, like I see these uh, imitation bamboo fences that are, I mean, I, I hate them because uh, they never age. You know, they're, they, they look like bamboo, <clears throat> but they're, you touch them and they're like, plastic or a resin or something yeah. and, um, and that's the beauty of natural wood is that it, it, it ages be. and it changes over time yeah. um, but you know like even inside the house where we have mostly wood inside the house and how it ages and changes over time is lovely um, yeah but somewhere that, I mean, that where should it be the, the appeal but yeah. we have it, it again it's an economic and 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 let's say labor labor situation where in the past there was always someone available to you know, re help you remake your your bamboo fence inexpensively. Uh, they were popular because they were inexpensive. They were av available to, you know, just about any uh, e low low status farmer or or, or uh, resident of a town. Um, they were bamboo was incredibly prolific and cheap and easy to work with. So uh, and also you didn't have to be an expert to necessarily do it. And so this was something that's changed. The availability of the resource, the bamboo itself, uh, and then 
craftspeople available to do it at a reasonable reasonable price. Now you have to pay someone a lot of money to do that. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is a change, and I it, it needn't bamboo. be that way. But, that, but it, I would love to see more bamboo flooring <clears throat> and everything here in Japan. Um, whenever yeah. I go to Hawaii, it's bamboo flooring, bamboo everything. Uh, very rarely used in Japan. Well, yes and no. Uh, bamboo again all over the world. We talked about flooring earlier, uh, and many Japanese home builders ha have been using bamboo-based flooring uh, for, again, 20 years. And in this book, in this my book, uh, Dreamhouse, came out in 2001, and since then, I've seen a lot more bamboo flooring. You can choose it, and it's a reasonable, uh, not that expensive, it's a reasonable, uh, uh, you know, reasonably inexpensive choice uh, and what the, this kind of flooring is as you as you know is the bamboo is sliced you know very thin and then laminated together and it's a good stable very um, kind of renewable uh, resource uh, approach to making a floor and I see bamboo used in a lot of other things and some architects like Kengo Kuma uh, uses bamboo based uh, materials in a lot of places even for wall panels or ceiling panels and other things so um, these materials are there if you look for them and if you request them I, I'm going to keep asking. I haven't yeah. had any luck so far, but we need, okay. in another five years, we need more remodels. So I'm going mm -hmm. for bamboo next time. <laughs> well, it's I, there. Yeah. It's, okay. It's, it's, I'll keep asking. Yeah. I'll ask yeah. you for a reference next time. Um, yeah. Let's talk about some of the Japanese cultural aspects of a home which have lasted even to the modern day. I found this really interesting. Um, so, for example, the religious aspect of the yes. Shinto and the Buddhist, in mm -hmm. the, as well as the Oshire, where you put the futons. These mm -hmm. are things I still see in modern houses now, and they go back to er Edo era, I imagine, right? Even be before the Edo era, I think, for most of them. Um, yeah, it's really interesting because no matter how modern or updated the house is in terms of its structure and materials and the appearance of the house, there's still a kind of mental mapping, a kind of spiritual mapping of the dwelling and the dwelling being the home of the family. And the family includes the ancestors who have passed on. Uh, and as you mentioned, there is a, a strong female aspect to the house. There's also a male domain or can be a male domain, also a children's domain uh, and 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 places that are the domain where non-family members uh, can be, you know, uh, received and, and, and can can visit and occupy. And this kind of this is an invisible mapping. And a lot of what you described, um, I think, plays into that. So, yes, um, families have a butsudan, uh, which is a Buddhist uh, shrine for the uh, lacquer tablets uh, honoring the ancestors who have, who have died. Uh, and usually this is the eldest in the family is expected to have this in their house. And and over time, I mean, there's a very traditional way to do it. And sometimes these altars are, as you know, they're very large and ostentatious and they're pretty expensive. They'll have a lot of gold leaf and things. Often they're much more subtle, dark wood and kind of, you know, moderate. Um, and, and there are very, very modern ones as well that are small, look like a simple cabinet that fit in with any kind of modern decor, but they still are expected to exist in the home, especially of the eldest um, you know, offspring, usually the eldest son, but could be the eldest daughter. Uh, the same time, you mentioned Shinto, and uh, families, especially families that do business, have a kamidana, so that's a god's shelf, and this will be up, placed high on the wall, in one of the more important rooms uh, with a miniature shrine and little dishes for offerings of sake and little vases for, um, you know, the flowers or, or the, the, the branches as appropriate for the season and other uh, some salt and things like that. So um, these, you know, for many families, it's interesting because Japan is technically, and if you ask people in, a, in an opinion survey, they will say they're not religious. You know, the vast majority say, no, I don't have any religion. And by that, they mean uh, a faith, religious faith that they practice and they study and they go to services. They'll say they're not religious, but you find these things in the homes everywhere. Uh, just like people, you know, they go to, they have uh, Buddhist funerals and, and Shinto ceremonies for weddings and they take their kid to Shichigo-san at the shrine and, and all this stuff. So these uh, these have become less religious in the sense of, of we think of in, in the West and more simply cultural things, but they're there. And I think these um, point to the notion that the house needs to be protected, 
and, and in some ways, maybe even supernatural protection. And I don't know that you'll find many people if you just talk to them, oh, what about this? Is this protecting your house? If you mention them, I say, I guess so, you know, not necessarily really on the top of their, you know, awareness why this is done. Uh, and a big part of this, uh, the spiritual thing of the house, is the cleanliness side. And as you know, Shinto is very involved with purification. Uh, Buddhism also to many degrees, uh, but Shinto is all about being pure and clean. And you know, Japanese, as of course we take our we take our shoes off in the house. We will go about in stocking feet or maybe slippers for the house. Uh, and and there's a clear demarcation when people enter in the genkan, the entryway, uh, which in the old days was usually literally dirt floored, unless you were a very kind of high status person, you could have like stone floor or something. Uh, it was dirt floor, you would enter your, your street shoes, your outdoor shoes would be left there, and you would literally step up into the house. And the word come in is agate kodesai, which literally means come up. Uh, and then you've taken off your shoes, you're in the clean zone. Uh, and this is, you know, the idea of go going in the house in the clean zone, uh, the pure zone, to defile it with your outdoor shoes, the dirt and whatever you've stepped in. This is just horrifying to people. Uh, and and then there's even another zone, the toilet, which is also a dirty zone. So you have to slip, at, change out of your indoor, uh, you know, slippers or, or 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 from your stocking feet, put on the special toilet slippers when you go into the toilet. Uh, and even today, you know, although these things are rooted in hundreds, thousands, of thousands of years of, of conscious, spiritual consciousness and notions of cleanliness and purity, they're still found in every single house. Even if you have the, the most inexpensive one-room apartment, there will be barely room for one person to stand in what is considered the ginkan, and the floor level doesn't even change, but there'll be a little strip of aluminum or something or plastic on the floor marking where the clean zone starts. And this is just to me marvelous, marvelous. Uh, and there's other things, as you mentioned, the female zone and the sort of the male domain, the kids domain. The kitchens, yeah, they have usually been considered the, the realm of women. And men were generally, let's say, discouraged. And like a lot of things in male-female power dynamics, um, you know, Japan is ostensibly a male-dominated society, and we know that economically and in terms of uh, positions of power in politics or, or, or business, um, you know, it is still clearly the men occupy uh, the positions. Uh, but in many cases, the real power is wielded by women. And, and there are rarely, this is almost just a, a commonplace saying though, rarely men in positions of power who are not supported by an almost equally powerful woman who may be operating behind the scenes and without recognition and without equal pay. Uh, the same thing in the kitchen, like the idea that the man is kept out of the kitchen, on the one hand, it's because, he, oh, he shouldn't get dirty with all of that kitchen work. You know, he's their honorable Otosan, honorable father, uh, and we will bring him what he wants. But that also puts the man in a position of dependence on the, the women, the mother, the wife, the daughters, etc. cetera. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, because they will only bring him what they are prepared to bring him. And, uh, you know, he might request, oh, tonight let's have so-and-so for dinner. But that's rarely, it's like, what's for dinner tonight? You know, don't we have anything more, you know, and and Rakugo, for instance, is full of this sort of stories of the wife who intentionally is like getting back at the husband by giving him stuff he doesn't want, you know. <laughs> so this is a bizarre power dynamic. But the the kitchen has been the women's role. And I remember when I uh, did my first homestay was in Tokyo. Uh, and uh, it was uh, the family of a friend um, from from America, uh, from New York, and they wouldn't let me in the kitchen. Uh, and the father rarely went in as well. There was also this aspect that they considered it dirty. See, a part of this cleanliness thing, the toilet is the dirtiest place, but the kitchen is also considered a kind of a dirty place because it gets full of, you know, smells and, you know, cut cut up stuff and guts of fish and things, you know. So it's considered kind of a dirty, dirty place. So I remember that there was a, a curtain, like a Norin curtain. Uh, closing off the entry to the kitchen, and and the, the mother, if I would go in there, she said, no, 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 don't go in there, you know, and she said, oh, because it's dirty, <laughs> and I would think, okay, if you say say so, you know, and also it's cramped and whatever. So, um, but this is definitely, you know, stay out of my zone, you know, the, the women protecting the zone. 
a lot of this has changed, okay? And a lot of men are in the kitchen. The homes have designed with more open kitchen plans uh, and the kitchen dining. This is a whole thing, the dining area, LDK with the, the dining and kitchen are sort of connected in many, many homes now, uh, if not most of them. So this demarcation is not as clear, but it's still a women's realm. Uh, and the bath occupies a very interesting place yeah. because it is the place you go to get purified, right? To get clean. So it is considered super clean. It's the ultra clean place, right? Uh, and uh, and has to be kept ultra clean. So um, it's kind of interesting, this this kind of mapping. Uh, and you mentioned Oshiire, closets. Um, to me, that's also really fascinating. In general, Japanese storage is just fantastic. Uh, and, you know, maybe the, the only problem is limited floor area to get enough storage. But when the storage is there, it's usually beautifully and really interestingly well designed. Uh, and Oshiire, uh, for people who don't know, they're these very deep, uh, about a meter, almost uh, you know, three feet deep closets, usually wide, um, as wide as the room, so maybe 10 feet or more wide. Uh, and the, there's a shelf in the middle. Uh, and futons for sleeping or would be folded up is the size for a perfectly folded futon. And you would stack the futons up in there or use it for everything else as well. You could put there, the entire industry in Japan has come up with fantastic uh, storage things for drawers or whatever that fit perfectly inside the typical Japanese oshiire uh, storage closet. And of course, they usually have these sliding doors, right, to open and close them. Uh, these are, again, still fairly ubiquitous, even though. The, the 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 most shishi, the most, you know, let's say high status designs these days are advertising their walk-in closets, you know, for hanging stuff. Uh, and, and that's kind of a new sales point, but um, they still need an oshire for the futons uh, or the bedding. And we have them in our house. Even if you sleep on a bed and you're not using, you know, uh, sleeping on a futon on, on the floor, it's still the perfect place to put the bedding and things. So this is interesting. And I think of the, the futon as a dark and ultra private space, rather than the food, the Oshiri, as a dark and ultra private space, uh, just like bedrooms. I mean, in the West, um, if you have a party with your friends, it's not that unusual to invite your friends to your bedroom. Or I mean, I'm talking about, you know, to have something going on, but, you know, uh, if it's you, you have female friends or, uh, you know, come over, hang out in the bedroom and look and look at my stuff here. It's not that uncommon, but in Japan, that's almost unheard of. Uh, you know, maybe close, super close friends might come in for a specific reason, but that's ultra private space. Uh, so it's it's kind of kind of a fascinating zoning, and uh, the places where non-family members can come are kind of uh, limited, and and this has always been a kind of a struggle in Japan to have places where you could have guests over comfortably, and that's one of the main dynamic drivers of the whole uh, house design industry. So that was not a brief answer, but you just ask the right question. <laughs> well, there's so many cultural uh, significant things in the book talking about how house design and the desire mm -hmm. for certain house design has changed over the years. Um, one interesting thing, kind of shifting gears a little bit, you talk a lot about the prefab industry and how making things beforehand and then quickly putting them together, that was a, a big part of the development of Japanese house design. Can you talk about that just a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. And again, a lot of the book focuses on prefabrication and what's called the system house, system jutaku in Japan. And uh, prefabricated housing, you know, it, it goes back pretty far if you look at, you know, what militaries were doing even in the 19th century to have, you know, structures they could erect quickly, you know, uh, and certainly in the 20th century in the wartime. Uh, in the pre-war, like 1930s, I think, in the U.S., there were some notable examples of prefabricated houses being put on the market, um, you know, and for the United States market. And after the war, um, we had uh, Levittown and we had other uh, subdivisions with it, not were prefabricated were meant to be built as quickly as possible. Uh, and Japan was, the house manufacturers and designers were, were looking at all this. I mean, they were very, very aware of this. Um, and I think the first uh, prefabricated house efforts really began in the 1950s. And the government had been doing lots of promotional things like giving awards for designs that could help solve this incredible housing crisis. And there was one for uh, prefabricated solutions. And several housing manufacturers in Japan got their start back then uh, because of the work they did to develop uh, prefabricated houses. What's interesting is that, um, you know, initially 
a prefabricated house like a Japanese one, um, and there's many different kinds and, and different ways that it's done. Uh, some of them would, would make entire room modules in a factory and truck those to the site and connect them, bolt them together. Others would make panels, um, you know, like Misawa House became famous as making panels, <clears throat> excuse me, that had all of the piping and the electrical wires and the windows and everything already installed. That would come and be, you know, connected together. Uh, they all have their different uh, systems, um, but the they basically also draw on this Japanese tradition of building wooden buildings, which even the temples, you know, that's basically a prefabricated building. They would spend months making all of these wooden beams and, and columns and parts that are going to be jointed together and then just cart it over to the site and boom, the assembly goes very quickly. Uh, within days, the basic frame is done. Japanese houses, traditional houses, the basic frame goes up very, very quickly. So it is a kind of prefabrication. So there is this long tradition. And connect this Japanese manufacturer for housing with the automobile industry. Well, they learned a lot eventually about using robots and automated welding and other things and assembly lines and all this. So um, it is now, initially, you would see prefabricated house and it would look a little cheap, you know, not so terrible in a place in the 1950s or 1960s where so much of the housing was still inadequate. But it looks a little cheap. But by the 1980s, you couldn't tell if the house was prefabricated or not. You would walk in. I would go with you know foreign architects or designers or engineers uh, to visit prefabricated houses, and they would say, I just cannot tell this is prefabricated. So the quality became indistinguishable from the best quality construction uh, of, of other kinds of homes. Uh, and and now you know the the house manufacturers have continually uh, kept a large part of the market, and I would say about half, in general, uh, if not more. And depending on the region, uh, they they provide good service, and uh, and the designs are very very attractive. That um, you have in the book, and you you sent me the photo of is the early Misawa. So uh -huh. it's it's a kind of a typical. The first floor is bigger than the second floor. Uh, yeah. Maybe a quickly. You often see this type of house around, maybe built in the eighties or nineties. Yeah, there's typical the typical one, and there was sort of also housing zoning and regulation reasons why there would be a certain size and um, you know floor area and taxation and stuff. But that was a simple simple kind to build, and uh, many manufacturers produced a similar layout a similar silhouette of, of, of houses when they're doing that um, at the same time in the 1970s we started to see some very futuristic looking ones you know again i mentioned the osaka expo and the metabolism so suddenly you got things that look kind of like they're coming from a sci-fi movie uh and that was kind of a trend that lasted for a while but not not too long um but ultimately there was also a a real um desire again i'm seeing this in the 1980s becoming very very strong was to have things that really are are stylized as western houses and and giving choice to the customer you want it modern italian you want it scandinavian you want it american you want it you know british style uh these were all available uh and and the basic framework and structure of the house is the same but the exterior treatment and the interior treatment is going to be different or you want a japanese style and the japanese style could be just one style that you just choose from like a, the list of of available styles uh and this is kind of fast people like this westernized lifestyle and, and continue to do that and and you mentioned earlier we have kind of a a fusion and that fascinates me today because uh, if you go to you know look at new homes that the, the home shows um there is this interesting fusion it's now where we are now in the 2020s and this is a trend that started maybe even 100 years ago in some senses, and it's going strong for 50 or 60 years. Now, this is the Japanese lifestyle. You can almost not identify Japanese uh, design aspects other than these sort of you know, mental mappings I talked about. Uh, it's hard to say. What is the Japanese? Well, the bath is always going to be a Japanese bath, you know? Uh, but people, the kitchens, a Japanese great kitchen could probably be used very comfortably in a house overseas, or you could use the best you know, Italian or Scandinavian kitchen design in your Japanese house and, and use it very comfortably. So uh, this is really interesting where we are in terms of lifestyle. Uh, fascinating that it is so, in a sense, internationalized and has absorbed so many uh, other influences. Yeah, wonderful. 
Uh, we have a question from Wendy. Thanks for joining from Facebook, Wendy. She says, as always, deeply fascinating. Thank you both. Quick question. Are any of your books available in Japanese? Thinking of a special gift for a friend. The one book that is fully translated and, and as a Japanese uh, book is the Edo book, uh, which you know, Just Enough, uh, and the Japanese title is Edo ni Manabu. Which is a mouthful, which means learning about ecological lifestyles from Edo. And that's published. It's available uh, in, in Amazon Japan or Japanese bookstores. It's, it's easily available. Um, the Dreamhouse book, in interestingly, was also the text was translated in, and included as an insert. Um, but the book is a little hard to find. Um, it, it was, again, uh, only 10,000 copies were printed back in 2000. 2001. Uh, I still see it available um, on Amazon as a used book, so it's possible to find it, but the text is Japanese. Um, and other books have not been translated yet. I always look forward to that happening sometime. Yeah, it seems like there'd be a lot of interest. Um, yeah. Just the book we're talking about today, it does have an insert mm -hmm. um, with a beautiful <clears throat> translation of the Japanese text um, mm -hmm. about the book and the contents but not, not a Japanese version per se. Um, one thing I love about Japanese house design, which I'm so happy that you not only featured in the book, but I'm starting to see more and more of, is the Japanese wooden beams being exposed so you can enjoy the contours of the original design. I love that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um... Of course, that's one of the strongest, you know, characteristics of traditional Japanese homes is that the wooden structure is visible, or most of it anyway. And so the columns would be made of wood that's hopefully attractive and the beams would be visible. Even if there's a ceiling, often it was done in a way that the wood framework was also visible. Uh, and this is a real, you know, strong characteristic and uh, sets it apart from most of the other uh, architecture styles in the world. Um, and over time, you know, as this westernization trend began, that sort of fell out of favor uh, in a lot of places. This idea of a, a room with simple walls, and, and in Japan, of course, they're often covered with wallpaper, you know, uh, that's very, very common in interiors, and it's, you know, wallboard and wallpaper, uh, and, and very few homes actually were trying to show the structure. But as time went on, and again, as early as the 1980s, I started to see Japanese manufacturers. I'm thinking of Sexy Heim uh, in particular, um, pretty much um, using new structural technology, uh, using, uh, for instance, laminated wooden beams and exposing them as a primary design feature. Uh, and, and of course, in this case, the beams are not connected with wooden joints like the traditional Japanese house would, but with uh, steel hardwares that hang them together. And they could still be prefabricated and easily put in place. So I see more and more designs sort of highlighting that structural thing. And, uh, you know, this is as much a modern architect, a modern architecture feature as it is a Japanese architecture feature. Uh, and again, a lot of modern architecture borrowed from Japanese architecture. So that's one reason why. Um, but this is also interesting to see that. Uh, and so it has only really been able to be done on a mass market scale because of the availability of what what's called these new engineered wood products, these laminated beams, etc. cetera. Um, but they're very, very strong. And again, another thing that we noticed is uh, after the 1995 earthquake, the Awaji, uh, uh, what is it, Kobe earthquake, um, there was a great attention paid to earthquake resistance again in in the products of the, the house manufacturers and uh, and this these ones i mentioned these big wood beams also sort of say i'm secure and strong uh, other systems are equally strong and they're very good survivability in earthquakes um, but um, this this is a big a big sales point is how secure and strong in earthquakes is your house how safe is this house making you I think that's definitely a, a key point in Japan mm -hmm. for people looking to either remodel or to build new. And you have a great discussion of the advantages of building, uh, remodeling an existing building. Um, mm -hmm. For example, not just knocking down all this beautiful architecture, but just enhancing it. And I think we've found that with our old house as well, we've had great remodelers who say, you just need a support beam here. We just need to reinforce there. And you can keep 
your mm -hmm. original structure. And we were so happy with that because we love the aesthetic of it. And uh, there was definitely a trend, which you talk about in the book too, of knocking down and building fast. And then it, there, there has been more appreciation of older buildings, but I think in your book you talk about uh, very few Japanese people you talk to actually see any value in the traditional styles. It just seems maybe cold or too old or not comfortable, not convenient, right? Yeah, uh, hard to live in, hard to keep clean, um, you know, and again, yeah, not insulated, etc. And that's been a common a common thing. I think it still persists to today. Although, yes, at the same time, uh, since I've been here 30 something years, I have seen much more interest in uh, renovation, restoration, uh, you know, re, you know, they may making older farmhouses, very livable, older townhouses, much very livable. Um, and even older concrete buildings. I see a lot of really interesting architects doing designs, uh, of buildings, maybe from the 1960s or seventies that, you know, may seem nondescript, but also have some kind of character and then doing renovations on the interiors to make those attractive. Uh, so, um, there's more appreciation definitely than there was 30 years ago, but by and large, again, the industry wants to sell people new houses, just like the automobile industry wants to sell people new cars. And a lot of things are set up to make that easy to, to, to motivate that. And again, property values, uh, the cost of land is usually the, the larger part of the cost of a house. Um, it's the opposite of most parts of the world. And so, you know, the old house itself doesn't have a lot of resale value, just like old cars in Japan don't have a lot of resale value. So it's easy to persuade a homeowner to knock it down and it's cheaper just to build a new one. Uh, so at the same time, there's a lot of renovation. There's a big renovation business retrofit. Um, you know, they call it re re reform, right? House reform. And people do that, adding rooms or changing their kitchens or changing the bath or whatever. So uh, it's very, very skilled, and it's possible to do that. And, and depending on the skill of the, you know, the particular comitant, uh, the particular construction company or, or, or carpenter or, or architect you're working with, you know, the results may be different. But it's very, very common. But I do, uh, I mean, we talked about this earlier uh, in one of the earlier podcasts, um, houses are stories, you know, they're the story of the life of the family uh, who lived in them. And um, they age with us and they take on our character uh, and, and, and they, they learn from us. There's a beautiful book by Stuart Brand uh, called How, How Buildings Learn. And they learn from us and we learn from them. So I think it, I would like people to, to uh, keep those things uh, rather than just knock them down. But of course, if you have been spending your life in a house that was from the beginning, you felt it was inadequate. It's not big enough. It's uncomfortable. I really wanted something better. I want something like I'm seeing on TV. You know, if you always were sort of eh, annoyed at your house, well, then maybe, you know, you're going to knock it down and build a new one. And, and most people, again, in the post period, were coming from a time where their housing was absolutely substandard and, um, and barely adequate. So, and one big contrast that you see in even Japanese people, of course, when they see foreign houses, Western style houses, and something we talked about in the last talk about small house design, the importance of natural light mm. and how a lot of traditional Japanese houses designs are very dark inside. Um, so showing a lot of the pictures that you showed of American style, British style, European style houses and the high roofs and the big windows, right? All and skylights. All that, oh, that <laughs> natural light makes yeah. such a big difference. And of course, that desire to have that similar style of natural light using the outside nature to enhance your inside view, right? Mm -hmm. These are all things we talked about last time. Um, you can do that with a traditional build, but it is a little bit harder, right? Yeah. And again, there's a lot of reasons why traditional Japanese houses were dark and cool inside because they were mainly designed for the hot, humid summer months. Uh, and in the ways in terms of storms or in bad weather when it's cold, the, the, the easiest and simplest way for hundreds of years was simply to have big wooden shutters that, you know, you would close on the outside and then the inside is very, very dark. Now, of course, glass sliding doors became available and inexpensive. So that's changed a bit. But you still have the sense that the house is going to be dark. And if you want to have light, you'll need to sit near the outside. 
uh, near sliding doors, near an engawa, a veranda, or something like that. Uh, but there's no reason the Japanese house can't, something cannot be done in a Japanese style and still have a lot of natural light. And there have always been uh, traditional ones that do as well. So um, it's kind of a strange thing, uh, but, you know, I think for most Japanese people, the image of a traditional house is dark. Uh, on the other hand, that's kind of nice. There's a famous book by Junichiro Tanazaki in Praise of Shadows, uh, which talks about the beauty of the darkness of Japanese houses and buildings and things. And actually that there was something lost when some, suddenly in the modern period, everything became brightly illuminated. So maybe that's not something a lot of people are going to appreciate, but uh, it's definitely an aesthetic characteristic that you can learn to really love. Well, thank you so much, Asby. There's so many great insights from this book. If you can get a hold of it, I would <laughs> yeah. highly recommend uh, people seek it out. It's a great coffee table book because it has such it's a big, coffee table book, yeah. beautiful photos. It's very heavy. It has yeah. great stories, not just about housing design, but I think you really dived in deep about um, society and cultural influences and how the family structure and even economic structure also was connected to house design. Really interesting. Yeah, I, I, one reason I love doing these with, with you, Joe, JJ, is because you obviously have read the books so well and you really have summarized them so well. Yes, that's what it's about. Yeah. So I, I don't feel like we, we've done it complete justice. Uh, don't worry, there's still a lot more to discover if you do get the book <laughs> right. for yourself. Now, right. for the last five minutes, Asby, you've got a big event for SafeCast coming up. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Uh, as many people know, uh, this year marks the 10th anniversary of uh, 311 disaster, the uh, great uh, Tohoku earthquake, uh, tsunami, and uh, Fukushima disaster. And SafeCast was founded really the day after that disaster uh, began. And we are also commemorating our 10th anniversary. And SafeCast, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is you know a group of basically volunteer group to crowdsource radiation measurement uh, and also air quality measurement around the world and make it available uh, to the public. And uh, for our 10th anniversary, we have planned a big day-long live stream. And we've divided it into two sections. And beginning at 9 o'clock in the morning on Saturday, March 13th, uh, we'll have our team uh, in the SafeCast car uh, in Fukushima, beginning at J Village in the town of Naraha, uh, and then through the course of the day, driving north, stopping off at many places along the way, stopping and talking with people, stopping and d describing what we saw 10 years ago and how things have changed now. Uh, people will be joining us online. This will all be done on Zoom uh, and live streamed out through YouTube. So anyone can can check it out for free. Um, we'll have people jumping in, uh, some well-known people, Ray Ozzy, who's one of our great advisors, who's a, a Microsoft uh, former chief technical officer, um, Ray uh, Miles O'Brien, who's a uh, American public uh, television uh, reporter, very tech technology and um, science reporter, brilliant guy. Lots of people like that will be joining us. There'll be live music throughout the course of the day, and we'll sort of end up uh, in a wonderful ryokan uh, called Futabaya in the town of Odaka in Minamisoma uh, with a kind of a group discussion with local residents. Uh, they're very active people, uh, and we'll talk about their, their experiences. And then at 8 p.m., we'll hand off to uh, Europe to our Europe volunteers who have organized a five-hour roundtable. The morning session in Japan is called The Ride, and the evening session that begins uh, at 8 p.m. Japan time is The Roundtable, and that'll go for five hours, so well past midnight Japan time. And that's more of a like a conference with uh, specialists and experts in radiation measurement and in government policy and in social sciences talking about what uh, the impact of, of SafeCast has been and, uh, and, and citizen science in general and talking about the future of that. So um, like I mentioned, we're, we're doing it through Zoom, live streamed out through YouTube. Uh, the website is www.safecast.org slash SafeCast10. And if you go to that website, you'll get all the information, the schedule, the participants, and you can register. We're asking people to register. We're doing registration through PEDIX. There's a link on the webpage. Uh, register beforehand. Um, again, it's free, but there is a donation uh, scale as well. And uh, people who donate can get sort of VIP access 
to be in the Zoom itself uh, and ask questions directly uh, through the Zoom, et cetera. So um, it's a big deal uh, with a lot to organize. Uh, every day I'm spending time, you know, editing videos and the web page and doing planning and stuff, uh, but it's going to be great. And we really hope that many people can uh, check it out. So again, that's uh, www.safecast.org slash safecast10. If you just Google safecast10, I'm sure it'll come up. And there's a Japanese web page as well with the same information in Japanese. That's great. Uh, yeah, it's a great week, start of the week this month as well, all over the month. Um, is the time to remember the last 10 years of rebuilding the Tohoku area. Um, so many great events going on. That sounds really exciting, Asby. Good luck with everything. Sounds very busy, but very rewarding. Lots of yeah. good stuff happening. It's time to both celebrate and also uh, remember. Yeah. And um, so it's both sober, but also forward-looking. So we want to think about the future. Definitely. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on all the house design over the years in Japan. And Thank you. Uh, once again, sharing your insights with us. Thank you so much. All right. Talk to you Thank soon. You. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Uh, we have Wendy has just added the link below. We'll also put the link for everybody ah, below. Thank you, Wendy. Good, good. Thank you. And uh, yeah, Elizabeth said, can you share the link? We will uh, write it below and Wendy just put it just now. Thank uh, you. Tomorrow we're talking about vermiculture, compost and using worms for composting tomorrow at 5 p.m. Wednesday, we're talking with Angela Ortiz, who runs Place to Grow, uh, Tohoku uh, spun, uh, supporting charity about their work over the last 10 years in that area. And on Friday, we're talking to Jane Nakata, a podcaster about her work and her life abroad and coming back to Japan. Thank you so much for joining everyone. Thank you so much, Asby, once again. Thank you. Have a great day, everyone. Take care. Bye. Bye.